I love the holidays from college because we get to see some of our family who are away at school. I used to love it as a parent. I didn't realize how much I was loving it as a pastor until my kids finished. And now just to get to see everyone else's kids coming home from school and being here on Sabbath morning, it's good. I like it. Um, this morning we're going to continue. Uh, this is actually the last in this series for a while. We'll come back to Matthew. Um, remember, we're going to be covering Matthew for about a year until we wrap through it. And it may take us longer than that, but we won't do it all at once. We'll, we'll spread it into some other spaces and some other things and put some other, play, other things into it. Um, but I wanted to uh, just pick up at the end of Matthew chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 4. If you have a Bible with you, you're uh, welcome to follow along. Um, if, if your device is in your hands and you're searching for it, I'll, I'll give you a quick second. This is the closing the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you have to remember that there are no dividers in the original text. There are no chapter dividers. There are no verse dividers. There's nothing in there, just a flow of words. In fact, if you saw the original text, you would just go cross-eyed looking at it. It's all caps, no spaces, no punctuation. Try to, try to think about reading that. All caps, no spaces, no punctuation. And those are the original, original texts that have this information in them. So the, the verse markers and the chapter markers come along much later during the Middle Ages. A, a guy who had a long commute, he, tra- he traveled between London and France before there was a channel and before there was a freeway. And so he had lots of time going back and forth. And he slowly went through the scripture and he laid in the places where he thought a, a chapter marker should be and where a verse marker should be. And that became the standard that you have in your hand today. So I want to read it from 7 into 8, verse 4, so you get the flow of the end of what's going on, okay? So I'm going to pick it up at verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came up, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone... Who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. He taught them as one, having authority, and not as the scribes. Then I'm picking up verse chapter 8. Remember, this would just be a straight flow through. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Today, as we look into this passage, I want to I cover it under the idea that the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That's an Americanized version of uh, a a British idea. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Does that make more sense to you now? 
The proof of the pudding is in the eating. The first one sounds like maybe a treasure map, right? The end of the treasure map, the, the end is the proof is in the pudding. And in goes your hand, and out comes the chocolate jello pudding, and there's whatever the proof was. It's in there kind of messy down at the bottom of the pudding. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And this actually goes back all the way to the to the 14th century, and it's in some old English, which I'm not going to going to worry you about, but it may actually more regularly refer to the proof of the sausage is in the eating. Yeah, you think about what goes inside a sausage, it goes inside, it's in the casing, you can't really tell what's in there, right? And then you cook it, hopefully, and then the proof of whether or not that's worth eating is in the actual eating. So in the 14th century, they're saying, you know, sausage is kind of a roll of the dice. They're saying, you just don't know what somebody might have stuffed inside there and whether they cleaned it real well and whether they did it right. And so you're not going to know till you taste it whether you should be eating it or not. And which to which I ask, so why are you tasting it? It's a weird world in which we live where people taste things all the time. It used to be a fairly common practice to just taste stuff. They didn't know what it was, so they'd taste it. Here, I wonder if they had a, a kid like the ones that we all went to school with. You know that one kid on the, on the, on the school grounds, the playgrounds in elementary school? Who would eat anything? You guys have that kid on your elementary school? Yeah, I went to a couple of different elementary schools. We had that kid. Didn't, he didn't come with me. He, he just had a new iteration in the new place. There was always some kid who would prove his manliness. I never ran into a girl who would eat anything, come to think of it. Wait, someone just rose, raised their hand in the back. I won't tell on you, Jessica. I promise I won't tell anybody who it was back there in the second of the robe. But that's the first one. There was always someone who you could say, you know, what is this? I don't know. You try it. And they would try it. I wonder if that guy was around in the dark ages and before when they would, they'd come across a plant they'd never seen before and they would say, here, taste this. And the guy would taste it and if he lived, it was okay. And then he would tell him what it tasted like. If he didn't live, it wasn't so okay. But we have a lot of things like this. A proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof of the sausage is not until you taste it. In modern times, the way that comes to us today, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, is actually the idea that the proof of something, the demonstration of something's validity is actually when it comes to fruition, when it actually works its way out. Um, for, for those of you who are accountants, it's when the, the last number is a zero, right? When you come to the end of your sheet and everything balances out and you go, this and this all balance out and look, I have nothing left. And that's a celebration, having nothing left. And I still don't understand. And I still don't understand why if there's a nickel, you don't just put one in. But that's because I'm not an accountant, and I don't think like that. Uh, for, for guys like me, it's kind of the proof of the pudding is in the entertainment. If it's not fun, don't do it. If you found yourself doing something and it was really not good, not fun, no, nothing in it that was bringing you any joy... Do something else. So the, for me, the proof of the pudding is whether there's a smile on my face when I'm done. Okay? So I don't know what yours is. There's the proof of something. You always, you always feel it. There's, a, there's something that clicks. When it's, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's when, it's, when it, it's proven itself by actually demonstrating its validity. 
Well, this is what I'm looking at at the end of this, this particular passage. Jesus is, in fact, coming to the end of this, and he's making a statement in his actions, which he, will dem- which he later talks about, which Matthew later quotes in chapter 11. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, here's a glutton and a drunkard. Here's Jesus. He, John the Baptist come, comes being not, not involved in any of this, and they said, weirdo. And now Jesus comes and he's hanging out with normal people. He's having regular meals with them. And they said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Was he a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Yes, he was. Was he a glutton and a drunkard? Ah, so these aren't necessarily actually the same. He was having meals with people and they were still looking at him. Look at this guy. He has, there's no separation between him and the rest of mankind. Praise the Lord. Then Jesus says, But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus is about to demonstrate what he's just preached. So what a quick, I've gotten this review. I I keep shrinking this review down more and more and more. Now it's down to one slide now. The whole review is down to one slide. Jesus' 15-minute sermon. So stop and just let that sink in for a minute. If I were really good, my sermons would never be more than 15 minutes. So think that through. Think that through. They are often 45. 15-minute sermon. And I, I timed it. It was 14 minutes and 32 seconds, but I gave him some time for pauses. 15 minutes. Jesus values those who see their need of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus values those who see their need for God. He sets the bar of the spiritual life at God. Pretty high, pretty high bar? He sets the bar for the spiritual life at God. And a God-surrendered transformation. A surrendered transformation. He sets the values of our lives. He sets a different approach. Remember the Romans didn't like the Jews. They thought they were a bunch of weird malcontents who had this oddball religion and only believed in one God. What kind of a country only believes in one God? What kind of a weakling, know-nothing, worthless bunch of people only has one God? How ridiculous is that? The Romans and the Greeks had had myriads of gods. God's in charge of all kinds of stuff. And, and, and they look at these people and think, wow, how, how bizarre. You only have one God? How weird is that? And the, the Jews have brought the same kind of disdain to them. The Jews thought of them as pagans, unloved by God, undesired by God, and people you could easily hate. It was okay to hate these people just because they were Romans and Greeks. It's okay with God if you hated him. And yet Jesus turns the whole things upside down. Jesus says, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a person who recognizes how much they need God. It has to do with a person who recognizes how much they need God. And he states in the middle of this sermon, sort of the, 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 the nugget piece. I think in every, every sermon, no matter how bad, there's a little nugget somewhere you can save. So just remember that next time you just, man, he is tanking today. Just look for the nugget. It's got to be there somewhere. It might be buried, but you might, but the Holy Spirit's still present. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, 
For this is the law and the prophets. Little summary statement. Just a one-line summary. And it applies to your spiritual life. And it applies to your secular life. It applies to your children. And it applies to your spouse. Whatever you want people to do to you, do that to them. It applies to, you can pull it right out of the text and carry that around as what you do for the rest of your life and be living a life that represents Jesus. By the way, have you noticed the sign behind me? Live like Jesus. Isn't that a pretty good summary of what we're called to do? Live like Jesus. We started looking for a way to shrink down what we're about. Shrink down into simple phrase that everybody could remember. If somebody said, what are you supposed to do? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means you're supposed to live like Jesus. You want to talk about a high standard? But shouldn't we have high standard? Shouldn't we be reaching for the heavens? Live like Jesus. When you're standing there in the grocery line and the person inside in front of you pulls out their checkbook. And you go, checkbook? Hopefully it wasn't your outside voice. Hopefully it was an inside voice. And you think, who writes checks anymore? <laughs> one. And as they're, they're, they're getting there writing their check, you just start to steam a little bit inside. You want to give them your ATM card just to keep them moving. And then, then I just want this little phrase to pop into your head. Live like. Jesus. And you look at that person and you say, child of God. And you look at their checkbook and you say, what a wonderful relic from my childhood. <laughs> right? Right. So have you, some of you have probably never written a check. It's crazy to me. But okay. The standards Jesus Jesus is setting in this sermon turn the world upside down. They change everything. They change the way we go about our business, the way we think, the way we act, what we do. They change everything. And as they make this transformational change, Jesus steps off the mountain. So I picture Jesus standing up and beginning to to move, maybe dusts himself off. This spot that you're, we're, we're most likely talking about, the Mount of Beatitudes, there's a church on top because there's a church on top of anything, anywhere where Jesus was. It's, remember I've told you it's like George Washington slept here. They put a, they put a church there to, to, comm- to commemorate anything Jesus did. So there's a nice church on top of the Mount of Beatitudes. It's a beautiful church. Um, it's got great views of the lake. It's, it, it, when you think of Mount, don't think Mount St. Helens. Don't think Mount Rushmore. Think one of the hills nearby. Think, okay, if I were, uh, if I were in, down in Sacramento and I looked at the tallest hill in Rockland, that's about to change in elevation. It's not huge. Okay? It's five, six hundred feet from the sea, from sea level, from the, from the Sea of Galilee level, which by the way is below sea level up to the top of the mount, okay? We figure it's a pretty accurate place because there's this really nice sort of sort of pie-shaped 
little bowl there that you could put a big crowd into and still be seen and heard. And so if you think about just a pie shape, we've been in pie shaped churches before. You're going to be in one in about nine months. It's pie shaped building. And then this pie shape goes up and it's actually gathered to a, to a little round basin. So speaking into it would be really, really good. Your, the clarity of voice carrying down through that space would be really good. So Jesus is at the peak of that, the tip of that pie shape, if you can imagine it. And he gets up and he begins to brush himself up. The disciples get up and they do the same. The rest of the crowd gets, begins to mill around and gather and Jesus starts making his way. We know he's making his way toward Capernaum because the next event happens in Capernaum. So he's going down to Capernaum from there. It's about a mile to walk down the hill from there to Capernaum. If you were to drive today, it would be about four miles because the road doesn't go straight down. It works its way around and comes back along the lake. But from that point where Jesus would have been over the little ridge and down to Capernaum is about a mile. So I imagine Jesus took the most, most direct path. I don't imagine that he wandered around too much following the road that we would follow today. And as he begins to walk, he runs into a leper. And Matthew picks up the story in chapter 8. Large crowds followed him, followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, now get the suddenly part. Don't miss the suddenly part. What are lepers supposed to do? Stay away from everyone else. They're supposed to stand clear. Why? Because they're unclean and because the disease they have can kill you. Right? Now, leprosy is a lot of things in those days. It's not just what we call leprosy today. In fact, it covers a lot of skin ailments that probably wouldn't have killed you. But it was something they separated you out for so that you didn't spread it around to other people. This was the law of Moses. They were to tear their clothes. They were to keep their head uncovered, which was a sign of shame. And they were to shout amongst anybody who was around unclean. So now... Imagine that this crowd is beginning to move. Jesus has just stood up. The disciples have just sort of gathered around like the, like the, uh, the guards around the president or a political official, right? And they're, they're sort of standing around him, the secret service of Jesus. And as they start to move as a group, suddenly, suddenly, from amidst the crowd or from the edges of the crowd, somebody starts to shout out, unclean, unclean. Now, everybody knows what that means. Everybody in society knows there's a leper nearby. Look out. It's like a siren coming down the road. Man, I wish they would write tickets for this. Why is it that nobody pulls over anymore? Disrespect, I tell you. We won't get into a sermon on disrespect. Just pull over next time an ambulance comes. Anyway. He begins to yell unclean. And as he's yelling unclean, people start looking to see where this is coming from. And as they do, they automatically create some space. They begin to back away from this quarantined person because to be in contact with this person could cost you your life. And so everybody begins to move away and back away. And there's this man. We don't know how long he's been in this situation. We know that they, that all these folks were left outside. They lived outside these People were homeless. They lived outside. They, their clothes began to show the grime of living outside. Their bodies began to shine, show the grime of living outside. And as leprosy continued, if he was actually a, a, a leper as we would define it today, the parts of his body would begin to be, begin to be injured. And as those injuries didn't heal well, 
that person would begin to have scabs and normally bits and pieces would begin to uh, fall off. Because the real issue here is that his nerve endings are beginning to die and he's harming himself and he, the normal things that you would, you would hurt yourself with, you'd burn yourself, you'd kick a rock, you'd stick something in your finger, the normal things that would hurt you wouldn't be felt by him. Interesting picture, isn't it? The worst thing that could happen to you in the first century is that you no longer have any feelings. We'll just let that stay right where it was. And as he would then become injured and something might swell, something might become infected, none of this would ever bother him. And so the, the problem of leprosy is not so much the leprosy as the other things that followed afterward, after it. That's why they would, people would lose their eyesight because they would forget to blink. You blink because if you keep your eyes open long enough, your eyes will tell you you need to blink. Theirs wouldn't. And so this man may be in whatever state of disrepair. As he shouts, unclean, unclean, and the crowd begins to part and make space for him, he comes to Jesus. Now that tells you that the 12 secret service agents who were supposed to protect Jesus apparently parted the way as well. So this guy shouting unclean gets a clear path right to Jesus. Suddenly, suddenly, a man with leprosy approached and knelt before him. So here's this man. He comes out of the crowd. The crowd begins to part. He, he, he comes to the presence of Jesus. And he kneels before him. He falls down in worship in front of Jesus. He's apparently been on the fringes of the crowd listening. He's apparently had you know himself hidden behind a tree. Or sitting behind a rock. But he's been listening to what Jesus is talking about. And he buys into the authority of Jesus. Jesus has been saying over and over again. You have heard it said. But I say. You have heard it said. But I say. You have heard it said. But I say. Jesus is raising the amplitude of his power, his authority. He is claiming greater authority than Moses. And when he begins to claim this authority, a messianic ring should be ringing in the ear of anybody who is from Jewish heritage. They're expecting one like Moses. They will, you'll see it in the New Testament when they say, are you that prophet? Are you the prophet? It's not talking about some specific person. It's talking about the person Moses predicted. It's not, they will talk about Jeremiah and Elijah. Are you Jeremiah? Are you Elijah? Are you that prophet, that undesignated prophet that Moses promised? When Jesus starts making this comparative statement, he's upping the ante. He's saying, I am that prophet. And so this guy buys it. We don't know if anybody else in the crowd buys it. We know this guy does by his actions. He comes and he falls down in front of Jesus. And then the next word out of his mouth... Lord. Lord. He gets it. He recognizes who's he, who he's dealing with. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you see it? Do you understand what this man understands? Do you see in the testimony he presents what he's saying about Jesus? He's saying, if you are willing, if you personally, if you, Jesus, are willing 
you, Jesus, can heal me. People are still questioning who this guy from Galilee is. They're questioning who this guy from Nazareth is. This this backwoods rabbi from nowhere guy. And everybody who is of any authority doesn't know who he is and is questioning who he is. But this guy, this guy who's been sitting in a rock, sitting behind a rock or hiding behind a tree so the crowd didn't know he was there. He's been hearing the words of Jesus and he's become convinced. You are the Messiah. You are the one sent from God. And he comes and kneels down before him and he says, Lord, Lord. If you are willing, if it's your will, you can make me whole again. You could make me clean. I know that having read these passages and having accepted that Jesus is God, we just kind of pass this over with a, with a shrug of the shoulders. It's like it doesn't really strike us. To the crowd gathered, to the disciples This is either blasphemy or the greatest testimony yet made about Jesus. Lord, if you are willing, you can transform my sickness. Take it away from me. Heal my leprosy and make me clean. Now the problem with us today is that we're not sure we buy this. I mean, most of our prayers... Most of our prayers are kind of filled with little caveats. Most of our prayers are a little weak. We don't come to Jesus saying, you could do this if you wanted to. We don't come to Jesus saying, please heal me. I know that you're God. I know that you can do stuff. You, you, you are still alive and well and you do things in the earth. You still have the authority and power to do incredible things in our planet. We, we, we saw it a few weeks ago here when... When, when it happened right in front of us, and Exhibit A sits there on the front row, Carlene. Crazy. And we, we're even a little nervous to watch it. When you pray, do you pray with confidence? Or do you pray with caveats? When you pray for something that seems out of control... Which is when most of us actually pray in earnestness, right? Right? It's that Jesus at the wheel prayer. You, you know the song, right? Jesus, Jesus, take the wheel. Why? Because I'm out of control. Not until the wheels are spinning and we're, fl- we're, we're doing donuts down the freeway do we finally say, Hey, uh, could you help out here? When you pray, do you insert out clauses for God? You know the ones I'm talking about, right? This guy says, if you're willing. So he's got a little out clause, right? But I think his out clause is a testimony, not an out clause. He's stating his belief in Jesus' ability to heal him. You have the authority. You have the power to do this if you want to. Most of us end our prayers with an out clause. Lord, we'd like you to we'd like you to help us out here. We'd like you to step into the situation. It's it's clear that this person needs your help if you really want to.
Can I suggest that we pray by stating what we want? Our Father, we would like you to step into the situation and change it. Would you please? And give them what you want. Speak specifically what you want. Half of us, if our prayer got answered, we would know what. Please bless Sister Mary Sue. Okay. Butter. She has butter. What's the blessing? What do we want? Be specific when you ask God's blessing. Now, I didn't say be demanding. And there's the difference. The demanding person says, you must do what I want. After all, I, I went through all of the proper processes. I, I mimicked what they told me to mimic. And now you have to pay back. That's not what I'm saying. We're not talking about being demanding. We're talking about saying, God, this is specifically what I need. This is what I need. And then not bailing on that. Here's how I'd like to, like to suggest it end for you. God, this is what I'd like to see happen. If you choose to say no today, I will still trust you. But this is what I'd like to see happen. So it's unequivocal for you. So you know what you're asking. A few weeks ago, we were invited to pray for a a, a person who had uh, multiple tumors. it's It's a tough situation. Still don't know the final outcome. She was going in for surgery. And as we prayed, we're specifically asking, for some help for her. My prayer, specifically that she recover completely. Our prayers as a group were, let the surgery go without a hitch, that nothing will be damaged in the process of removing these things because they were in a lot of delicate and dangerous places. Got the word back the next day that the surgery had gone, and this was the the surgeon's word, perfectly. Is that an answer to prayer? Isn't that what we were asking for? But since we had asked specifically that the surgery go perfectly well, that everything go well without damaging any of the tissue surrounding, we knew when we had an answer to our prayer. Now I'm still praying because there's recovery from these things, right? I'm still saying, Lord, would you please bring her back to full health? And I know it's a big ask, but it's a big God we're asking. The man comes to Jesus, he falls down in front of him, he says, you have the the ability to make me whole. Would you do that for me? Are you willing to do that for me? And then, and then, Jesus does what no one has done since the priest pronounced this person leprous. Jesus does what no one has done in perhaps years. The Bible simply says, Jesus reached out and touched him. 
And without the setup of understanding the first century, everybody in the crowd went... By this time, they've gassed themselves all over the place as Jesus has been preaching. But he has just touched somebody whose very touch could kill him. The whole point of this guy being separated from the population is that he not touch anybody. And here's Jesus willingly touching the guy. He reaches out and he touches him. I love this. What did this man miss probably more than anything else? The touch of another human being. And here is the Messiah, guy he believes is in fact the Messiah, who reaches out and lays his hand on him, touches him. Crazy. Nobody does this. Jesus is a wild man. This is outrageous. This is turning the world upside down. Jesus is the kind of guy who touches lepers. I guess. Jesus lays his hands on him and he says, I am willing. I am willing. Be healed. And then you've got to picture it. You gotta let your mind. I mean, I mean, the next thing it says, and just instantly his leprosy disappeared. Great. Could we get a little more content, please? Matthew, can you tell us what happened? Did his blind eye become clear? Did he start to see again? Did his finger grow back out? What happened? Instantly his leprosy went away. Okay, his skin condition went away. Good, wonderful. But did he have the real form of leprosy? If he's hanging around with the other lepers, it's likely that if he's been there very long, he's gotten Hennessy's disease. He's got the disease that is truly leprosy. And if he's been in that group for years, which is likely, then he's probably full-blown leprous. And that means other things have begun to happen to him. The scabs healed up. His skin became fresh. His, his skin became clear. His, his hands and fingers became whole and not knotted and not missing pieces. His, his eye grew back into the socket. I'd like to know what happened. I want to see the video on this. His leprosy was cleansed. Awesome. Man, these, these disciples need to put a little more content in there for me. Instantly, his leprosy is healed. Instantly, he becomes whole again. Now again, what would you do next? Because we don't have much left. That's it. He simply then tells him, don't tell anyone what just happened. That's going to be hard. Don't go tell anybody. Well, you're walking down the street and you got baby skin again. Anybody who knows you knows what happened. And oh, by the way, there might be a thousand, two thousand witnesses. Shh, okay, everybody, we're going to keep this to ourselves. You couldn't do that in this room. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. So, go to the priest, let him look at you, because this is the deal. You got to, you got to get actually cleared. Take along the offering required by the law of Moses. Do you know what the offering is? A couple of little sparrows. I'll come to back to that in a minute. Take along the offering required by the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public 
testimony that you've been cleansed to who? The priests. If you look at other translations, it says this will be a public testimony to them. What is Jesus doing? He's just tipping the apple cart of a bunch of priests who've probably never seen this before. They've probably never seen this ceremony before. The ceremony is back in Leviticus 14. This shall be the law of the leper for the day he is of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall go out from the camp and the priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living clean birds, cedar wood and a scarlet hyssop, scarlet, scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. So, so let, let, here are two little birds, right? They're clean. They're a couple little sparrows or a couple little turtle doves, something like that. Pastor Greg talked about this once before, been years ago now. And one of those birds is about to lose his life. So in order to, to do that, the priest has got to have Two hands, and so maybe a little help. There's a there's an earthen vessel under the priest, and some water is poured over the bird as the priest takes the head of the bird off. If it's a small bird, he can do it with his thumb. If it's a bigger bird, it's going to take two hands. And I know that's a little gruesome for you because you're first century or 21st century Americans, not first century uh, Christians or Jews. It, it takes off the head, and the point of this is that the blood of this bird will be poured into this basin with the water. So this bird's blood runs out, the last of this bird's life ebbing away. And what's left is a little bolt, little basin with water and blood. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, and dip them and the living blood living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. So he takes all of these things and he puts them in the little pot and he takes this little bird and he runs it in under the water. And my favorite part, there's another, it goes on and there's some other pieces that happen a few days later, but this is my favorite part. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from leprosy, shall pronounce him clean. And then the last bit, and then he takes the living bird, goes out into an open field, and he lets it go. To me, it's the most beautiful picture of what just happened to this man. Jesus has turned the world upside down. He said, I love people like this guy. People who recognize their spiritual poverty and come to me for help, I give them help. This is what the kingdom I'm talking to you about looks like, guys. People who are leprous, I'll touch them. People who are broken, I'll take care of them. I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to save my children. I'm not separating from Moses. I'm not breaking away from Moses. I'm here to fulfill what Moses has done. And to prove it to you, I'm sending this guy back. And he's going to walk into the priest. And he's going to say, hey, I, I brought two turtle doves or I brought two sparrows with me. I used to be leprous and now I'm not. And the priest's going to go, okay, wait, back up. 
Look, we'll go outside of town. He's going to go, okay, I need some hyssop and some cedar and some red yarn. And all the other guys are going to go, what are you doing with hyssop? Wait a second. Are you telling me there's somebody here who's been cleansed of leprosy? I've never seen this before. Let's go check this out. So the priests are going to start gathering. It'll be a testimony to them. And they're going to step outside and somebody's going to bring the earthen bowl and they're going to take the head off of that first bird and somebody's going to pour over the water and they're going to watch. They're going to look at this guy whose skin is fresh and clean and beautiful as a baby. And they're going to check him upside and downside and they're going to say, man, he looks like he's okay. And they're going to take the, the water and the blood, the water and the blood. They're going to take the water and the blood from his riven side did flow. And they're going to sprinkle it seven times on the man. And then to demonstrate what it's like to no longer be leprous, he steps out into that field and he lets the bird go. He sets it free. This is the world that Jesus lives in. This is the world he invites us into. A world where God cares about what happens to man. A world where the Messiah touches lepers. A world where sin can be washed away by the power of the water and the blood and be no more. And you and I can be set free. The final proof is in the pudding. It's in the actions of Jesus. It's in the decision he makes to take this step. The final proof is in that bird. 70 miles away, a couple of days travel. In that bird, somewhere on the hills around Jerusalem, with a gathered, on-looking set of gawking priests looking this man upside and down saying yeah yeah I remember when you were pronounced leprous and look at you now I remember when we decided you should be separated from the rest of the camp so that this horrible thing that you're carrying in you doesn't pollute everybody else's life and look at you now and they sprinkle the blood and the water. And they all watch. Smiles breaking across their faces as the, the priest lets go the bird. And it's free. Let's pray. Father God, it is well beyond our reach to even imagine most of the amazing things you do. We recognize ourselves in the story. We know we're not Jesus. We know that we come to you with a brokenness <clears throat> that we can't do anything about ourselves. So we 
together today. We'd like to say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make us clean. This week has been a polluted mess for us. We've come here this Sabbath morning bearing the the battering of the week. Some caused by others, some of our own volition. Come recognizing our need of wholeness and cleansing. So we pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. The renewal of our commitments to you today. And we know from the amazing act of the cross that you're willing to make us clean. Help us to feel like we've been set free like we've been given wings to fly. Like we've been cleansed of a death sentence and offered eternal life. 